Roger Corman film and it became a, a cult favorite, uh, two, two sequels. And still to this day, I sign autographs. I go to these conventions and I sign autographs of people you know, this. I, I was 15 years old. I, I, you know, this was so long ago that I marvel that I get to meet these fans that somehow this film made such an impact uh, on them. And uh, I remember when they were honoring Roger Corman at the Academy. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the media giant effect. And I'm first excited to welcome the program author, celebrity author, Paul Hollis, author of the Holloman series. Paul, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest. I am too. And this is the first time ever, even though I've had, you know, actor, I mean, I've had sing people sing on my show, show, but I never saw the awards right there. He knows what he's doing. Aren't you excited, Paul? I am very excited. Yeah. All I, right. I, so I, I have hear, David Milburn, everything about Emmy it. Award winner, three-time Emmy Award winner. And we can see it right there. You're not lying about it, right? Here it is, David. Right. The, <laughs> no, David Milburn, how are you, David? I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me there. Really. <laughs> Absolutely. So look at those, those Emmys. Now, did you ever, when you started out in your career, think that you would be an Emmy Award winning? You know, as a little boy, I always watched those award shows and thought, oh, my God, you know, it was a, a, a situation where I would try to manifest, you know, I'd try to say, yes, I will be there one day. I will be there one day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's um, I'm very grateful to have been there. So uh, I thank you for pointing those out. So so how did it start your career? How did, how did um, it get well, I was a, a, a kid actor. uh doing commercials for McDonald's. I, I was the counter boy for glasses to go. Do you remember that? Uh, where you would get a soda and you got the glass and you got- You're to talking about like Grimace and all those? Yeah, yeah that was mine, yeah. Glasses to go, glasses to go. McDonald's <laughs> has McDonald's and glasses to go. Get the mayor, think back and even Ronald. A different glass every week at McDonald's. That was, it. that was awesome, David. I, you, do you still have that on YouTube or stuff? Your commercial? Oh, I, you know, I don't know. It was so long ago. But but from that point, uh, my I did their next campaign. I did remember when they had uh, swirl ice cream and you got to keep the glass bowl. So they called yeah. it Sunday Smile and I was a Sunday Smile for them. So, <laughs> you know, my, my dad was a drummer and um, when kids came along, he had to quit drumming and, 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 you know, get a career that paid more money. And he always said to me, David, you're making these great, this great money with these campaigns and everything. Why don't you go into it? Why don't you give it everything you got? And he said to me, I don't want you to end up 40 years old thinking, what if, what if I would have given it everything I got? So I did not end up 40 years old wondering if I had ever given it everything I got because I, I am out there. I've been there. This has been my career. My so, so, so tell me specifically highlights of your career. Would you say are the ones that people would know you most? Well, I'll tell you my first film, Slumber Party Massacre, uh, was a Roger Corman film and it became a, a cult favorite, uh, two, two sequels. And still to this day, I sign autographs. I go to these conventions and I sign autographs of people you know, this. I, I was 15 years old. I, I, you know, this was so long ago <laughs> that I marvel that I get to meet these fans that somehow this film 
made such an impact uh, on them. And uh, I remember when they were honoring Roger Corman at the Academy um, a few years ago, I was there uh, for another uh, thing. And, and uh, I, I was going over to Roger's um, table. I was going to say, you know, oh, uh, Roger, hey, David Milburn. He goes, before I got that out, he goes, David Milburn, Slumber Party <laughs> Massacre. He's 83 years old, or was at the time. He's older now. And uh, I was just so honored because then he put me in his second film uh, called Sorceress, which we shot down in uh, uh, Mexico City at Churubusco Studios. And that time, every day in the uh, commissary, we were next to Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and they were shooting the first Conan the Barbarian at the time. But... Uh, you know, from there, uh, you know, I played Lance Hurd on General Hospital. I played John Stamos's best friend. I moved into uh, nighttime television and then then came along Movie of the Weeks. And I played everyone's good husband and bad husband, uh, you know, past obsessions, uh, an, an accidental Christmas, which Cynthia Gibb was my wife, uh, a fatal reunion. Erica Laniac was my my wife, you know, I've I've really run the game. And then sci-fi and ABC Family. I've just been a journeyman actor, guys. That's what I've been. But, but that's that's but working actor, it's a good deal, right? Well, it is a good deal. And uh I learned how to storytell and I learned how to fix bad scripts and I learned how to to be even better with great actors opposite me. I was in Gods and Monsters, which won an Academy Award. I played Sir E. McKellen's doctor in, in that. I was nominated for three Academy Awards and won one for the director, uh, Bill Condon. And I, I just feel that uh, I've been grateful. I've been grateful and lucky, And uh, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. And when I moved into, I, I haven't really moved into, I'm still an actor, but I started writing, I started producing, I started uh, directing. And um, when people say, well, do you, do you miss acting? Well, acting's an amazing craft. Studied with Lee Strasberg, graduated from Northwestern. Uh, my parents were really behind me in getting my training. Um, but when I look at producing, when you look at a film that you've produced, it's like, oh yeah, um, I selected the composer, I hired the director, I made the script changes there. You know, I had the final uh, 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 say on the edit. So when you look at a film that you've produced, you think, wow, I'm all over this place. As opposed to as, uh, when you're an actor, sure, you've got your role and you try right. to expand it and make it impactful and layer the character. But still, you're at the mercy of the director, the producer, the editor. Um, but when you produce, you've got you're all over that screen, which is kind of fun. It's kind of fun. And so and then, and then we'll talk about that with the Emmys. But, Paul, what question you have so far for David about acting? Oh, my gosh. Um, David, I've seen you in so many things. You cannot believe it. Um, awesome. I, I don't really have a question for you. I'm just amazed at, at your talent and, and looking at you here in person, you know, sort of thing. It's like, I, I appreciate that, you know, so. Well, so Thank you. Perfect. Thank you, Paul. I really, I change my look in everything I do because that's part of, part of my thing. I just, I just feel that you've got to really, I did a film down in New Zealand called In Her Line of Fire opposite Mariel Hemingway. And uh, they, they, the director said, you know, I don't see you as a, a psychotic Marine. I just don't see you. So I go, give me six weeks. I see a jar head cut. I see hats. I'm going to bulk up. And uh, we got down to New Zealand. I did my first take running through the jungle with this, you know, this uh, gun. And, and I, I could feel the director just saying, oh, 
I dropped my robotic <laughs> marine, you know, kind of thing. But, uh, <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Great. Great. It's, it's definitely fun. So what we, let's talk about how the Emmys, how did that all happen? What, tell us the stories. Did you give well, me- I, um, um, uh, one of my, one of my big, um, you know, and it's all over the news now. And I know Neil, that you support this too, the, the social bullying, the, the social media that, that brings about the bullying. And, yes. Um, the, 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 the hatred of, of, of young people. And, and we didn't grow up with social media, so we don't know how to handle it. So I got involved uh, with a show called Girls Voices Now, where we give cameras to underrepresented little girls, 13 through 18, and we match them with female mentors who look like them. And they, and I say, go, go tell your stories. Go tell us what your life is like. Well, they come back with these amazing heartfelt stories that we have no idea what they're going through. So I put them to, together in a series called Girls Voices Now. And last year we beat uh, Sesame Street and Apple TV Plus and uh, uh, you know Disney and uh, these little girls. And I bought all the little girls Emmys. I bought Emmys for every one of them because they're their stories. But before the telecast, I remember a little Mehran and she was a Muslim girl and her little short was about wearing a hajib and how she was bullied and laughed wow. at, made fun of but she knew the religious reasons why she was wearing um, the hajib. And, and she said, David, my, my, my story doesn't matter. My, I, I, it's so personal. I go, Mehran, the more personal a story is, the wow. more universal it is. We all have something like yeah. a hajib. We all have that. So when we won, she just broke down and cried. And she said, I didn't even want to go on camera. I said, See, the more personal a story is, the more universal it is. Um, my next season now is uh, one of the shorts is about generational trauma. I know Robert Downey, Downey Jr. just did a, a documentary about he and his father. This is about an Hispanic family. Uh, do you guys know what period poverty is? Period. No. Tell me that. I'm learning from these girls. Period poverty is that your family is so poor, you cannot afford hem- uh, feminine hygiene products. Oh, no. Wow. They're going into 13, 14, 15, 16. Uh, they tell such heartfelt stories that um, at the end of our shooting season, we give them um, certificates and we have a premiere of 200, 300 of their friends. And if these if these young women don't, they don't even have anybody listening to them in their lives, let alone at our premiere where we show the films and all their families and all their friends are there. They realize we give them certificates and those smiles will stay with you for a long time. I I love this work you're doing, David. I did not familiar. And then we're going to go into hundred years of men because again, this is Valentine's day. We're going to talk about that, but I'm just going to, I'm blown away. We need to collaborate. The media giant and David Milburn are going to collaborate to end cyberbullying because again, they're not doing enough. It's great to know we're going to, de- and I, I, I love Harlan. So we're going to definitely have to have another communique because that's you a goal. That. I'm about to be partnering with an organization called PASS that's involved in security, but they, they, to keep their kids safe, PASS K through 12, they create guidelines, but they have nothing, not tons of things on cyberbullying yet. And we yeah. need to get that going because we need to protect our kids in schools. 
they're soccer, cutting, they're they're cutting them so many other ways. They're cutting themselves. They're uh, attempting suicide. Oh, they my look, gosh. They look at their photos and say, how can I ever look like that? And might as well just end it now. It's uh, it is. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about 100 years of men. Go into uh, that. My latest project um, is something that uh, really extends into my childhood. When I was growing up in Indiana, I came across this tintype. Uh, of two handsome young gentlemen sitting uh, next to each other and their legs are crossed to each other and their shoulders are touching. They're holding holding a little placard that says Bourbon Fair 1908. And I said to my mom and dad, I said, what, what is this old tintype? Who, who, who are these people? Oh, David, that's your great, 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 great uncle and his friends. Well, the, the picture, always, the tintype always held such wonderment for me because I didn't know about it. Um, and my dad was born in Bourbon, Indiana in 1926. So speed ahead, I find Neil, um, Neil, uh, Neil Treadwell and Hugh Nini's collection of 3,700 other pictures that wow. look just like this. Oh, my goodness. Bingo. That's the reason why I wanted this project. I called them up. I'd already won an Emmy by that time. And I said, you know, I'm David Milburn. I think that your collection would make an amazing documentary. So they said, here are the 3,700 pictures. Uh, my editor, Billy Clift, and I went through and culled the, the TV special down to 350 photos. We realized that these gentlemen were way behind, beyond uh, their time. They were expressing their uh, feelings and their love for each other when it was not cool to do so, when, when they could be in prison, when they could lose their livelihoods. They were going into uh, photo booths and uh, closing the curtain and being yeah. alone. Oh. Well, why photo booths? Well, there was no photographer. There's no uh, developer. Those photos are, are, are spit out oh, and they can be kept. These photos, some of them were pristine as if they were up on a mantle. Others were uh, folded up and creased and put into wallets and hidden away. But what we do realize is, is these gentlemen paved the way. We stand on their shoulders as we, uh, we, love, we are able to love freely nowadays. But these gentlemen showed us the way through imagery through positive imagery that love matters. Their love mattered then, their love matters now, thanks to this TV special, because we're getting it out there for folks to see that love is love. And uh, we should feel, you know, they always say, we should ignite other people's torches to 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 go on. Well, if you, you pass on the torch, you're left in the dark. Well, those of us in the media have a responsibility to not only ignite, but keep our torch and keep our voices going, but let other young people also know that there were uh, LGBT couples back in 1859 to 1959. We cover a hundred years of men in love in this TV special. That's great. And tell us when the TV special is going to air. Oh, well, it's on uh, here TV, H E R E dot TV. Here TV is covered, uh, is carried on all cable and satellite systems throughout the United States and also st every streaming service. So just go to here.tv, H-E-R-E.tv to find out and see it. That's fantastic, David. And other projects you have going on right now? Anything I'm, else? I'm, I'm writing a kickboxer film right now. Uh, I just, uh, um, you know, it's, it's important to provide positive role images for our LGBT audiences, you know, for them to watch a film and say, you know what, the hero is not gay in my film. 
He just happens to be a kickboxer champion and a kickboxer uh, who's fighting evil. But our audiences will know that, you know what? An LGBTQ person can be a hero in a film, can be the, um, uh, the, the, the cause for good in the world. So that's important imagery. And, and here TV uh, provides that. They are, are so into authenticity, authenticity to provide positive role images to our um, uh, LGBTQ community. All right, Paul, tell your story really quickly for David be on yeah, air about you and why you wrote your book series. Go ahead. Uh, well, um, I uh, had the opportunity, let's say, to um, to travel in Europe as a young man in the 70s. And uh, uh, I actually tracked terrorists um, in, in those days and um, uh, for uh, one of the government three-digit, three three uh numerals uh and um i was on the ground and and but the, what they didn't tell me was that i was i was wearing a red shirt like a star trek uh character yeah that i was a uh, very expendable but uh, i didn't see it that way but but it's all it's really all about the action that i saw and it's it's uh the the, the three books are almost non-stop action and probably 80 percent to 90 percent true um actually i uh was not really uh um a Jack Ryan, Jason Bourne kind of a character because I did I did get my hand almost cut off with a in a knife fight, but that's uh, that, that part makes of, part, part of the story, human, which is relatable. That's great, right? Yeah, so you wrote books on that's with a different character. So tell all the key film, Paul. Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, so there, there's a a series of three books. I'm actually writing the fourth one now. They're they're all number one bestsellers, and uh, people seem to to like them when they read them. Uh, and uh, you know the the I, I, the characters uh, I've made the the environment uh, the locations and the characters basically you know so if you're if you're in Paris you really feel like you're in Paris and and uh, and, and this sort of thing so uh, that's what I'm working on and and uh, looking forward to uh, to uh, meeting people who can get us sort of located situated and in, uh, into uh, understanding that maybe it would make a good uh, screen screenplay sort of thing. Yeah. Sounds lovely, you know, and and yeah. and you've already done the hard part. You've put the characters on the page. You know, if they don't, there, there's an old adage: if it ain't on the uh, the page, it ain't on the stage. So right. if you've got some bestsellers, uh, shop them around and dream big. I, I, my, my that's what that's what that's what I've told Paul. He's going to dream big <laughs> and he's going to make it happen. David, best Thanks. place people can go check you out. Where can we go? Um, you know, um, most of my work is done with Here TV, so it's right there. Uh, I, I wrote a series called Falling for Angels, directed it, uh, wrote a series and directed a series called Now What? Uh, and my acting career is out there. Like Paul says, you know, keep watching for me. Uh, yeah. You won't recognize me because I, I slip into my characters, but uh, I, I'm out there. But uh, yeah, uh, I appreciate it. Appreciate it, David. Take care, guys. Yeah. All right, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strategic Wealth Strides podcast with our host, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? How are you? Good. How are you doing today, Neil? Great day Uh, here in North Carolina. A fantastic day here in Texas as well. And what is our topic for today? Well, it's about, especially for people coming close to retirement, are you ready to uh, ride the stock market with the volatility that's involved in it? And I prepared a short PowerPoint presentation. Give me a minute. Let me share my screen. Okay. I will start it from the beginning. All right. 
should you ride out the stock market making sense and, and as the topic as you're about to jump into that in a second uh good topic alan that's for sure yeah i'll tell you what the way the stock market is going it's uh it's pretty scary it's definitely scary and especially uh what's happening in our country for sure okay all right can you see all this yes i can all right let me uh Put this back a little bit. Let me put it back. Let's put it up. Let's put it up here at the top. All right. Should people ride out the stock market, especially when it comes to vol to uh, the volatility that's involved in it? Now I've got people. Well, you know, the, all the pundits say, you know, invest in the stock market is going to give you the biggest gains over the years. Well, let me tell you what the S and P just got back to what it was two years ago. But I've got some points to bring up about that. Both the Dow and the S&P 500 were back to where they were two years ago as of May 31st. And it's been stomach-turning uh, roller coaster all along the way. But understand this. It has gone up a tier, maybe 10% this year. But look at your investments and retirement account balances and wonder why you're not seeing that kind of gain. Because 96% of those gains were caused by five technology companies. And people don't understand that. You know, MarketWatch just called the S&P 500 ridiculous and question whether you should bet on your retirement on the fortune of a small handful handful of stocks and mm -hmm. i am i completely agree of course this is the financial uh, expert advice that only the, uh, the only way to grow your sizable nest egg is to invest in the stock market over a long period well here's the thing the people that are telling you this neil their stock and bond portfolio they they have they get a fee whether you make money or not and I tell people, I said, let me ask you a question. They say themselves, they call themselves fiduciaries, but how can they call themselves a fiduciary when they, when I introduce a product to them that only needs two thirds of that stock stock market portfolio to give you guaranteed income at a four percent distribution rate, and they tell them not to do that. And that, from what I'm talking about, that's guaranteed for life too. You can't do that with a stock market. So how can these people call themselves fiduciary? And again, they make they make a, a fee whether the client makes money or not. And I used to be a registered investment advisor, but I got a conflict of interest. I don't do that anymore because I don't like charging a fee whether I make fee whether I make money or not. So I'll ask people, is this really true? And I, I'll absolutely tell you, it's not true. There's many ways out there, but people have to think outside the box of conventional financial planning. You know, the, the typical investor he earns a meager 4.3% annually after adjusting for inflation. And the other thing people don't know, yet most people we surveyed said they wouldn't endure the ups and downs for less than, uh, in a market for less than 7%. Investors who use asset allocation, long consider a strategy that gives you the best chance of coming out ahead, have essentially no growth over the past 30 years after adjusting for inflation. And if you thought fixed income investments were a safe bet, think again, they've actually lost ground even before factoring the inflation. And these statistics are from the Dalbar uh, quantitative analysis of investment behavior, and it paints a very sobering picture. It's a stark reminder that the stock market is dangerous. It's dangerous money that you're counting on for a secure retirement, funding for college and other financial goals you have set. There's no guarantees for the stock market. You can lose 50% in, in a couple of days, just like back in 2008. And another thing people understand, Neil, if you lose 50% in that market, it takes 100% gain just to get back to even. Hmm. Now, here's just a couple of things that that the volatility may stay 
may stay thanks to the economic headwinds we're facing. You know, public traded companies' revenues are sliding, inflation remains stubbornly high, lending conditions have tightened significantly. We've had many bank failures already this year, and recessions over the past 30 years have closely tracked banks' willingness to lend money. You know, they're not lending money like they used to. And China's economic troubles can have significant consequences for the markets and growth in the U.S. And a couple that's not on here, Neil, the national debt. You know, we've got a $31 trillion, well, actually, it's more than $31 trillion. And wow. there was a congressional budget office report that was put out last fall just on a debt of $31 trillion. If we do not raise taxes overall by 66%, we can't even pay the interest on the uh, debt that we have. The country will go bankrupt. So what are they doing? They're raising interest rates. They're printing more money, causing massive inflation. We've had the highest inflation we've had in 40 years. The other thing is fuel prices. That's one of the things causing inflation. Because, you know, they want this green energy deal. That's all well and good. But you, they all want it all at once. That's not, it can't happen. It's just like farm equipment. You know, what are you going to do? Wait 24 hours for it to charge up so you can go out and plow your fields? Right. I mean, that's just, it's not going to happen. No. And it's economically not feasible for it to happen. But the thing is, if prices go up in the fuel, they go up for everything. I don't care whether it's food, whether it's consumer goods or anything else. Now, understand this. This is really scary for people. At the same time, consumer debt has skyrocketed, averaged over $101,000 per household. And meanwhile, their savings has dropped precipitously. And what I show people is how to eliminate debt, eliminate possibly taxes altogether. And when we eliminate debt, we eliminate the compound interest cost, the effective interest costs that people pay into financial institutions. And they have no idea what I'm talking about. And I asked this guy that I did a program for, I said, what's your interest rate on a mortgage? He said, it's 2.75. I said, I want you to fill this form out, send it back to me. I said, you got $461,000 in debt. That is not your problem. Your problem is the effective interest cost you're paying on all your debt. The effective interest cost on your mortgage is 49.76%. Mm. He said, how is that even possible? I said, well, because it's not going to get down to the 2.75 until the last couple months of the mortgage. He said, I said, the problem is you got good credit, but your average effective interest cost in all your bills is 46.23%. Mm. Mm-hmm. And he said, I said, what financial vehicle are you investing in? A 401k or a stock portfolio that you're going to 46% rate of return? Because 46 cents of every dollar that you spend goes to compound interest for the financial institutions and not for yourself. He said, well, Alan, I, I, you know, I, I just didn't know. I said, well, let's take that $1,000 you're putting in that 401k and let's put it in this program for 10 years. And then I asked him, I said, how long would it take you to pay your debts off the way you were going? He said, 20 some years. I said, okay, we're going to pay your debts off in 14 years. We're going to save you $76,000 in interest and put $130,000 in a tax-free account and a $400,000 debt benefit. Now, this account we set up for him is what I call an SDIC. It's a specially designed insurance contract. And we set it up in a way that'll get people out of debt and you know, Dave Ramsey gets you out of debt, but the problem is Dave has you pay the information, I mean, the extra payments to the financial institutions compounding for them and not for you. But what we do is we set this SDIC up and take that money that Dave Ramsey was putting towards these, these uh, financial institutions to pay off bills, and you put it in a tax-free bucket of money that compounds for you year after year. 
But that's another that's another story that I have for people, and I can talk to them about that after this presentation is over. But don't let market dis volatility dictate your destiny. I tell everybody, you have the power to take control of your of, of your future, your financial future. I spoke at West Point, excuse me, Harvard back in 2017. There's about 150 people there, and I told them, I said, uh, you know, they were doctors, CPAs, top top uh, attorneys, everything, business owners. I said, you know, I can change your financial future with my strategies and products, but I challenge you to take charge of your financial future and have liquidity, use control of your money. And, uh, I, and I showed them a few things. But the thing is to think outside the box of conventional financial planning. Now, this is what I show people. And they, they say there's no such financial, financial vehicle as this. What if I could show you a financial vehicle that has the following benefits and many more? Let's you leverage our progressive tax system, turn forever taxable money into never taxable money, provide you with long-term care options that are tax-free for pennies on the dollar, provide you with tax-free income in retirement and before retirement. You can't do that with a stock portfolio in a 401k. If you take it out before 59 and a half, it's a 10% penalty. Plus you have all the taxes to pay on it. And the taxes are going to be higher than they were. They were the lowest tax bracket we've been in 70 years, Neil. And another thing, it protects you from the taxation of Social Security and the means testing for Medicare Part B, which is going to be in the thousands of dollars. And I'll give you a quick Reader's Digest uh, view of this. Let's say that you're married at age 65 and you make $44,000 or more in income from a 401k, a pension plan, or something else like that. All right. You get $3,000 a month in Social Security. 85% of your Social Security is going to be taxed. Right now, in the lowest tax bracket we've been in in 70 years, that puts you in the 12% minimum tax bracket, 10.13 effective tax bracket, because we have an effective, I mean, a progressive tax system. You're writing a check to Uncle Sam for over $6,000 every year for the rest of your life. Mm. Variety of taxes don't go up. It protects you from market losses, all the while giving you the ability to take advantage of a market loss because you can borrow from yourself in your cash value policy. And it's not just cash value life insurance, it's fixed and fixed indexed annuities too. You can create a legacy for your for your children or your or your beneficiaries that's tax-free. And I tell us like Tom Hagnes says, spend your assets, give your children tax-free life insurance. You can divide that up equally. And people aren't arguing, are we going to keep mom and dad's house or are we going to rent it out or whatever? It stops a lot, a lot of arguments. It protects you from lawsuits, liens, and judgments. You become your own bank, paying yourself compound interest and not the financial institutions. I'm going to give you a real quick example. Let's say that you have $50,000 built up in this SDIC, specially designed insurance contract, and you want to spend $30,000 for home renovations. Now, you can go to the bank at 0% interest and get a loan for three years. You're paying $10,000 a year for three years. And at the end of three years, you'll have all your renovations paid for, correct? All right. But the problem is you're, you're comp you've lost that $30,000. It's going to compound for the financial institutions for years and years and years, but it's never going to compound uh, compound for you again. So what you do is you take that $30,000, you borrow from yourself in that SDIC, and then you pay yourself back $10,000 a year. Not only will you have your renovations paid for, Neil, but you have this $30,000 that you pay for for the re uh, res excuse me, the uh, restoration. And also, because it's a non-direct recognition company, 
this whole life policy, they have to pay you dividends on the original $50,000, plus you have a death benefit, which is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars that you can use for long-term care tax-free or protect your beneficiaries. Now, people don't understand this, and it's it's not rocket science. It's stuff, like I said before, it ought to be taught in high school. But I said, and I've said this before, I've got doctors who have PhDs in accounting and and uh, finance, and they know nothing about what I talk about. If any, any of this would interest you from becoming debt-free, becoming tax-free for life, extending your your uh, your financial future, securing your financial future, protects you from the risk in retirement. The number one fear in retirement is running out of money before you run out of life. I can show you how to eliminate that. Longevity risk, which is a risk multiplier. I can show you how to eliminate that. Sequence of returns risk. Many people don't know what this is, but if you have a loss in the first three years of your retirement when you start taking money out, your, your uh, retirement is going to be decimated. I can protect you from this and many, many other risk in retirement. So if you'd like to talk to me, here's my information, 910-551-1046, or you can email me at strategic well, the number zero at gmail.com. And there's my website down there also. But I hope I got through to some people in here to open up their mind to think outside the box of conventional financial planning because it makes a huge difference in people's lives. Great information, Alan. Again, looking at all these options that are better than just you know waiting for the stock market to get better. Uh, definitely got to contact you today. Well, I appreciate it, Neil. All right, Alan. All right. That was the Strategic Wealth Strategies podcast, guys. Take care. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection. I'm your host, Marisa Jones, and I'm joined by my co-host, Neil Haley. Today's guest is Lisa Baker. With 30 years of Fortune 500 leadership experience, Lisa is an ICF certified coach who champions women, particularly women of color, in the workplace. Her exceptional talent as a former fintech executive propelled her to become the highest ranked black female in a top rated organization with over 16,000 employees. Lisa founded her Maryland-based coaching practice, Ascentum, in 2021. Since then, Ascentum has earned several prestigious awards, including Inc. Best in Business, Globy Women-Owned Startup of the Year, and Stellar Business. Lisa knows the path to the top and the obstacles that come with it. So she is uniquely qualified to help high achievers overcome barriers to earning leadership promotions and thrive in those roles. Her coaching approach blends her leadership expertise with her passion for empowering others to discover their areas of greatness. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be with you. Um, wow. Uh, you know, I love that you have your own coaching practice and, you know, it's based on leadership. I'm a big proponent of leadership and teaching women leadership skills because, uh, you know, we have a lot of leaders out there, but not a lot of um, 
educated leaders. <laughs> so, you know, they're not true leaders. They're leaders in title, but they really don't know how to lead. So tell me a little bit about your journey as to, you know, how you you came to, to running your own business. Well, thank you for the opportunity again. You know, it's been an interesting journey in that um, if you had asked me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, hey, will you have your own business? I would have said, no, I don't think so. That wasn't in my plan. I started my career in financial services and worked my way up the corporate ranks. And I really was comfortable being a leader in corporate America and working in Fortune 500 companies. And my last role um, I was really thriving in that role. I had a large book of business, two and a half billion dollar portfolio that I was responsible for, had a great team and my trajectory with the company was upward. I could have gone on to do more, but in my heart, Marissa, I knew that it was time for me to do something else. And honestly, I didn't know what that something else was, but it was just a tug, this leap of faith that I was willing to take. And so I volunteered to be severed from the company. Shortly thereafter, having that white space or downtime to just think about what's next and sitting in the question, what's next for me? The answer started to come. And it came from people seemingly randomly reaching out to me to say, hey, what are you doing now? And would you be willing to coach me? I need help in this area or that area. And that really started what is now Ascentum. I had several areas that I've always been passionate about. And those three areas became the three pillars of my coaching practice. The first is connections, which is about developing those meaningful relationships with others so that you have true connections, because I believe that everything that we'll ever have will come through another person. So if you want to be a great leader, you got to get really good at connecting and building relationships with people. The second pillar is career, and that is all about having impact, doing meaningful work that brings you joy. And the third pillar is finances, and that's about having financial knowledge, literacy, knowing what to do with money so that through your connections, you create influence. Through your career, you have an impact. And through finances, you have the income to live life on your own terms. And here I am. Now I get to sit here and have this conversation with you. I love that. You know, you think about the three pillow, pillars and it absolutely makes sense. Connection, my number one, I love making connections. I still have connections for my 30 year career, you know, clients, colleagues, I still reach out to them. I think it's really important um, to, to continue to maintain those, you know, um, definitely finances, right? And, um, and uh, what was the third one again? Sorry. And the career, really. The career, oh my goodness, yeah. right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and people think about career, they get focused on one track, you know, but you were able to kind of step out of that. And, and that took a lot of risk, right? And so when people started reaching out to you, you know, you had a blank split, a, a, a blank slate to start from, people started reaching out for, for coaching. What was the process that you went through to say, okay, I can coach, I can do this, but I need something formal. I need a package. I need a set of services. I need a model to follow. 
Um, what, what did that process look like for you? Was it just already in your head and you just jotted it down or did you have to go through figuring that out? Yeah, I went through figuring that out. So when someone reached out to me, I had the confidence that I could coach them or support them because really I've been doing this informally and without the professional title of coach throughout my career. One of the things that I prided myself on as a leader is being a leader who developed people and helped them to see more for themselves maybe than they you know, kind of imagined. So pulling out of them their gifts and strengths and helping to propel them forward. I've been doing that throughout my career, but it was important to me to get real coach training so that I'm not just going on instinct, but to, to learn and grow and develop professionally um, before really saying, yes, I am a coach. And so that's what I did. I, I went through coach training with the Coaching and Positive Psychology Institute and then worked on building my coaching practice so that I could become certified through the International Coaching Federation, which I did. And I'm continuing to learn and grow in that space because I think continuous learning is essential. That's great. I love it. So you focus on women and you focus on women of color. So tell me a little bit about that. Obviously, you, you know, you're, you're a woman of color, so you resonate with that. What, what would be, you know, what's different about the approach that you take because you're focused on, uh, you know, Black women in business? Listen, honestly, that was an evolution. I didn't start out saying, hey, I'm going to be a coach for women. I just was going to be a coach. And, but what I noticed is that the people who seemed to gravitate toward me just happened to be women. And then, you know, as time has gone on, it has become women. And, you know, I have clients who are men and who are not black, surely, but most of my clients, 95% of my clients are women and women of color in particular. So Hispanic and black being the top in terms of ethnicity, um, and then white females, and then the men you know, fall out from there. But I think it's because we attract who we are, number one. And I, as you said, I, I just happen to be a black woman. Um, but the other thing is that it's women who specifically are looking to navigate through these corporate spaces um, and because I've done that, it, it took me a long time to get to that level of being a senior vice president in a Fortune 500 organization. And it was not without some bumps and bruises along the way. And I really feel just firmly that it shouldn't take that long. It shouldn't be that hard for the next person who wants to come behind me. And certainly for the next woman, we as women still are you know, the minority in these big organizations. Only, if you look at the SVP level, only 26% of people at the SVP level are women. If you look at women of color, it's only 6%. Now, come on, wow. in 2023, that should not be the case. So Absolutely. I think that's, you know, it's why I'm so passionate about it. And, and here, time and time again, studies have shown that organizations are much more innovative they are more profitable. They are more inclusive environments. The workplace is more compassionate when you have women in those senior leadership roles. So it's good for business. It's good for the women. It, like, it's just a win-win all the way around. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a softer nurturing side to women leaders that you don't always get in men. And, and it's, it, 
and it's not to say men don't have those qualities. I think women are more apt to kind of show them in the workplace. Yes. Um, so, so from what I, you know, I've spent 30 years in, in uh, technology and there's very few women mentors for me uh, in that field. Um, you know, and what I noticed is that the ones that were there, you know, they were very competitive. They didn't want to work with you. They didn't really want to be your, you know, don't get in my space kind of thing. Don't sit at my table. Um, where, uh, and there's a lot of women who are afraid to kind of overstep that to, to say, okay, you know, I'm not going to challenge you. Where, where else do you see women, you know, when they're trying to, to, to raise themselves in their career, where else do you see them kind of failing in that, that, that they need help with? Yeah, well, so asking for help is one of the, the failures. Being willing to offer help, as you just described, is a challenge. Um, having this sense that we are in competition with each other because there's so few of us, right? And we feel like, you know, if you and I are in the same organization or in the same team and we are vying for similar roles, I could see you, Marissa, as my competition as opposed to just a comrade, a peer, an associate, a colleague. But here's the truth. The truth is, and a, a recent Harvard Business Review um, survey showed this, that women, unlike our male counterparts, we much more need other women in our inner circle in order to navigate and thrive in these corporate spaces. Women who have three to four women in their inner circle that they can rely on are much more likely to get promoted. We get higher levels of leadership responsibilities when we do get promoted. And we also get paid more when we have women in our inner circle you're not my competition, <laughs> I'm not yours. And so that's, a, that's one of those areas in which we fail. And so part of what I work with is helping people to reframe and change their mindset about how they view themselves, first of all, and then second, how they view themselves in relationship to others, whether it's men or women in the workplace, but especially as it relates to our sisters. There's this other thing that happens is that somehow white women and women of color see themselves differently. We're all women, right? Some of the issues are common amongst women and not, not um, necessarily has anything to do with the color of my skin. And yeah, so let's, we can let's raise it, let's hold together, let's lift each other up all together. Like, let's Absolutely. do it, let's make an impact. Right. Yes. Yes. And then when we get in those spaces, for some people, the other failures, there's this tendency that's like, hey, it was hard for me and I had to figure it out. So you're going to have to figure it out, too. Well, I'm the exact opposite. I say, forget that. Let's make it easier for our sisters to come behind us, to help pull them up and pull them along. Because, you know, what's the old saying? You know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Absolutely. I love that. So, uh, so tell me a little bit. So you went to, you know, always working for a corporation mm -hmm. and you, you start your own business and you work on your own. Um, who did you reach out to, to for mentor? You know, cause we tend to take things on our own and don't ask for help. Like you just said, right. So did you reach out? Do you have mentors to help you in this next phase of your career? Absolutely. have mentors and coaches and people that I go to for support. So there are um, people that I met in my coach training who I am still connected to and we support each other because we're all new in this coaching journey. I have a coach for myself personally 
I have a business coach who helps me with, you know, in that regard as being an entrepreneur because it's new and different. And so, and then I have people that I've, you know, previous colleagues and others that I've worked with who have um, supported me throughout my career journey that I can still rely on to support me now. And I'm in the process of forming an advisory board for Ascentum so that I have a group of people that I can go to. You know, it's not um, large enough yet for me to have a paid board. It will be eventually. But now I'm looking for a diverse group of people that who are will be willing to serve as advisors to help me because it's very different being a solo entrepreneur than being in a Fortune 500 company where there's tens of thousands of people that you can go to for support. I love that. So who who would be your ideal advisory board member? Who oh, are you seeking a, out? That's a great question. So I would love to have someone who is a entrepreneurial veteran, let's say, and they've been in business a long time and been thriving, who can offer that kind of support. I want someone who is um, maybe not necessarily in business, I mean, as an entrepreneur, but who represents my ideal client so that I can get that perspective and voice. I would also like to have someone who is totally outside, you're thinking about building a diverse award, a male, you know, who, um, a white male even, who will bring that different perspective because I firmly believe that when you have a diverse group of people, you make better decisions. And so I would like my advisory board to be reflective of all of that. So male and female, um, age diversity as well, and then experience diversity, entrepreneur, person in business, someone who just represents my ideal client. That's I love that. Wow, that's so cool. You, you don't really get that. Usually it's somebody, you know, most people have like a cookie cutter board, right? It's like everybody has the same background, right? It's, you know, and it might be, you know, what they're trying to aspire to, but you might have five or 10 people on a board and they all have the exact same background. So you're not yeah. getting any new perspective. No, I definitely want fresh perspectives. I want people who are also diverse in terms of how they think and process information being different than the way I think and process, because I think that helps us as well. We can get so locked into the way we do things. Um, it's, it's harder <laughs> to have people who are all different, but ultimately it's better. You just get better results. That's great. So how has your life personally changed from going from a, a, a you know, a corporate life to an entrepreneur? Honestly, this is the hardest work I have ever done, but it is also the most rewarding work that I've ever done because every day I get to have conversations like this and have an opportunity to help someone else along their journey. So in doing that, I know I am fulfilling my purpose for being here, which is to help people live more meaningful and abundant lives. And so I just get such joy from that. The other thing that's changed is um, I've, I'm still, I was going to say I've gone through, but I would say I'm still in the midst of this identity crisis or an identity shift is probably a better way to say it. Because for so long, I have seen myself as Lisa, the corporate executive. And so I've literally had to rebrand myself and to begin to think of myself as Lisa, entrepreneur, Lisa, coach. And that's a very different person. 
And it requires some of the same skills and strengths, but it also is requiring me to develop many new skills and strengths. I like how you said a shift because um, it was about 10 years ago, I was listening to a podcast and the woman who was speaking was talking about most women go through seven shifts in their lifetime. And, and it's interesting, if you go back, you probably can identify them all. So yeah. I think that's really, you probably haven't reached anywhere near seven yet. Though. I don't know. I'm probably getting pretty close. I've got a birthday coming up next week. And so. <laughs> oh, happy birthday. Thank happy you. birthday. What are you doing to celebrate? I don't know. My It's my husband's job to plan the celebration. So I'll be surprised, but I'm sure it will be great. <laughs> that's great. I love it. Yeah. Well, the shifting is, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say about the the shift is you're right. I think we do go through a number of iterations and shifts throughout our lifetime. And what I would say, if there is someone listening who is in the midst of a shift or considering making a change, that's a shift to something new is just be prepared for how uncomfortable and stressful it may feel, but trust the process and, and allow yourself to go through that and get support, ask for help, because especially if you're going from being in a corporation, a place where you have lots of resources to going out on your own, where it will feel like you have many fewer resources, it's so important to reach out and just even be honest with yourself about how you're feeling and what you're experiencing um, and get the support that you need, because it, it's very stressful. Yeah, I can vouch for that. <laughs> well, thank you. We are out of time. Where can people find you, Lisa? Oh, you can find me at ascentum.com is my website. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I love making new connections. And on LinkedIn, I am Lisa L. Baker. Terrific. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women CEO in Reflection. To reach out to one of our guests, their contact is in the description of the show. Do you want a total mindset transformation? Apply to Mindset Warrior, The Art of Intentional Thinking, my personal coaching boot camp at IamAMindsetWarrior.com and schedule your call with me today. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection. I'm your host, Marisa Jones. Today's guest is Alana Proust. She's the founder and CEO of Recast City, a nationally recognized consulting firm working with city, community, and business leaders across the U.S. to revitalize cities by integrating space from small-scale manufacturers. Alana is passionate about her work turning downtowns into vibrant economies so these cities become great places to live, work, and visit. Her book, Recast Your City, How to Save Your Downtown and Small-Scale Manufacturing, is a must-read for people and organizations responsible for downtown reinvestment. A visionary in community development, Alana Proust is a highly sought speaker at prestigious events, including the 2023 National Main Street Conference, Northeast Maker Summit, and TEDx. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me with you today. 
Um, so tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, how, what was your journey to kind of start Recast City? What was your drive and passion behind that? So my passion has always been about great places. I have this sort of core belief that everybody deserves to live in a great place. And we know historically we have not invested in places equally. We've not invested in people equally. And I grew up in the DC area in the eighties. And it's a really, it was a really clear message that certain places um, were getting investment and some places weren't. And so the, the core of my belief in my work has always been everybody should get to live in a great place, however they define it, not based on my definition or your definition, but based on their own community de definition. And I worked in the field for a long time in community development, policy change, research. I was the numbers and maps kid at the beginning. Uh, that's how I broke into the field. And over the years, I realized we kept talking about great places and we kept talking about jobs, housing balance, and we never talked about the people. And we never talked about um, if what kinds of jobs and what kinds of businesses made the biggest difference for a neighborhood to not only be a great place, but to be economically resilient, to include the people who live in that neighborhood now, um, and to actually help them build wealth as a neighborhood changed. And so I went through this sort of exploratory stage and bow all the way back in 2013 and was trying to figure out what kinds of businesses made the biggest difference. And I hosted a series of events in DC called In the City. And I looked at tech and I looked at food businesses and I looked at transportation startups that were just the rage at the time. Uh, and then I did production in the city. And it was like this explosion in my brain that there were all these amazing people who were making products. They had no support, they had no space to do the work. And I had found real estate developers who were really excited about this sector when I was doing my research for the event. And it was this sort of explosive aha moment for me. And in 2014, I launched Recast City to focus on small scale manufacturing businesses and how they contribute to downtowns and neighborhood main streets, but also as a way for us to focus on community wealth building, especially for historically excluded and underserved populations. So I have a vision in my head, like growing up just outside New York City, and I would go to the downtown, uh, more like the Soho and Greenwich Village areas where you had a lot of small manufacturing businesses mm -hmm. down there. Um, what types of companies are in those um, those spaces, those retail spaces? Absolutely. So I, I have a shorthand that I use. It's hot sauce, handbags, and hardware, right? It's everything, <laughs> from, everything from the artisans in your holiday market to the 50-person brewery to the, um, I just spoke to somebody today who in their community, they have the folks doing 3D hip printing, right? That are custom to fit to a person's body at this point. All of that is small scale manufacturing. It's anybody who's creating a tangible product that you can replicate or package. And the key to them is that they're small so they can fit in storefronts, they can fit in our neighborhoods. Um, they can they desperately want to be a part of our community, whether or not they're consumer facing or supply chain, you know, or wholesale fa facing. And it's just a very different era or way to think about these businesses because over the last 40, 50 years, people have only thought about manufacturing, oh, you need 300,000 square feet, you need a million right. square feet. That's just not what's going on today. Yeah, a lot, lot more smaller companies, entrepreneur, uh, but they're still building great products. 
Yes, absolutely. And they're having incredible competitive edge because of fast ship time and custom work and quality of work and being able to have a personal relationship with the person making your product. So there's really exciting things going on in the field. So what is your ideal um, location as far as where they're at from a growth perspective that you kind of step in and take them to the next level? So we work with the community leaders to make sure that the environment around these entrepreneurs is in fact as supportive as it can be so that the community knows their business owners. We actually help them find the small scale manufacturers because most places have never paid attention to this business sector. Um, but then we look at things like real estate spaces, business development support, financing, PR and marketing, uh, 